right, good morning and welcome to Chanel. Had a really funny video that I did not upload, uh, which is what happened. I promise you guys it's hilarious. So uh, <laughs> you're not going to get to see it, so I don't want to ruin the surprise. But um, anyway, we're glad that you're here today. Happy Father's Day to our fathers, those who choose to celebrate, as they say. Um, we're glad that you're here today. Hopefully you're having a wonderful day and you get to pick lunch. No matter what the kids say, you get to pick lunch. So that means we'll go to our children's favorite place. Um, this morning we're continuing our series, uh, Vacation Bible Stories for Grown-Ups. A series that we've actually started tying into our adult Sunday morning class, where we're looking at some of the stories that connect these stories. Uh, and over the last few weeks we've talked about the flood, uh, we've talked about Joseph and the multicolored coat, and this morning we're talking about the burning bush. And so we'll be in Exodus chapters 1 through 3 this morning. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there, that'll be where we will spend a lot of our time this morning. But before I get into that story, I want to kind of update you on a little bit of uh, what we like to call the Kittinger crisis, which are things that are happening in our life um, that affect how we exist. So a few weeks ago, I went to uh, Judah's favorite place in the whole wide world, father-son camp at the University of Kentucky. Um, Judah was there. He loved it. He, he definitely didn't take pictures with people way younger than him like I did. Um, but it's one of our favorite things to do specifically for me. And so we go to father-son camp. We return back to Madisonville. And then I am going to head back to Little Rock. Um, and Whitney and the kids are going to stay in Kentucky. And um, they're going to go on a float trip with Whitney's family. And so I, on Saturday afternoon... The dog and I, Jazzy, we get in the, on our Nissan Rogue, 2017 Nissan Rogue. If you're looking, we're, we're going to be willing to sell it. Not yet, just a second, spoiler alert. Um, so we, Jazzy and I, we get in our 2017 Nissan Rogue, and we start heading back to Little Rock. We're listening to tunes, we're hanging out, we're having a good time. And we get to West Tennessee, uh, Highway 51 specifically around Dyersburg, if you're familiar with that path of highway. Um, I'm accelerating up a hill. I've got cruise control on, and I'm going up a hill, but then you feel like gravity, right? You feel like a tug that it's like, oh, I'm not really going up that hill the way that I thought that I was. And I look, and my cruise control has just said, we're not doing this anymore. We're not cruising anymore. We're not controlling it either. And I said, that's not great. And so as we're, we're trying to get up the hill, I can see the odometer, the odometer stick, I think. I'm clearly a mechanic, things like that, good with it. But the stick is just going the other direction. And I'm like, well, that is not how cars generally function. And so I, I push the pedal. That's how I push it, you know, wow. I push the pedal, and there's nothing. I'm like, oh, no. And I push it as hard as I can to the floor, nothing. The needle doesn't move. There's no acceleration. And at this point, if you're keeping score at home, I'm still on the highway, and I'm not accelerating. And so I, I you know, put my smart hat on, and I immediately pull over to the side of the road, put the flashers on, Jazzy and I assess the situation, and realize we're probably not going anywhere. And so um, I do the first thing that I know how to do. I call Whitney, and I'm like, hey, you're an adult. Uh, I'm going to need your help here in this situation. I said, I know the plan was for you guys to go on a float trip, but I am now on the side of the highway in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Um, you'll see me and a dog uh, and a Nissan Rogue. And so she says, okay, I'm, I'm going to figure out the kid's situation. I will come get you. And I go, in the meantime, I'm going to start Googling. I'm going to start looking to see, like, tow trucks, mechanics, or whatever. I don't know if you've ever had car problems on a Saturday. 
Um, it is apparently the most egregious front that you can do to humanity, is to call a mechanic or anybody on Saturday afternoon, because they're like, it's me time. I'm not helping you. And so, which is par for the course in Dyersburg, Tennessee. And so I, I start calling everybody. No one is open. Um, the people that answered kind of mocked me as far as like, it's Saturday afternoon. And I'm like, I'm aware. I'm also here with you in this community. And, and so I eventually find a tow truck service that is, you know, 24-7. They're willing to come get me. And I'm going to give them a shout out. Lowry's Tow Service. If you ever find yourself stuck in West Tennessee, Lowry's Tow Service. I normally don't give a bunch of shout outs, but I try to here because these people were amazing. So I call Lowry's Tow Truck Service and they come, they get me. And I, I said, hey, I'm forgot to tell you, I've got a, you know, an obese golden doodle here. What's the policy? Can she ride up with us or, or not? And in the picture here, you can see, uh, if you look close enough, under the Williams Magnet sign, uh, Jazzy is like, where are we going? What is happening here in this, in this moment? And so we, um, we, we get the tow truck, and I get in the car, shut the door, and we start driving towards Dyersburg proper. And we start that conversation that you have when you kind of meet somebody and you're in like either a contained situation or a hostage situation. And I wasn't at least sure, you know, at that point which one this was. And so he says, what do you do? And I, I've told you guys before, that is the worst question to ask somebody in ministry. Because you either get two lanes. Either they've got a bunch of questions that they are waiting to unload on you or they have no interest in your existence. And, uh, and I said, I, I'm, in, I'm a minister. I said, that's why I'm trying to, you know, hurry back to Little Rock. I've got to work tomorrow. And he said, I, you know, I'm not really that interested in church. And I was like, okay, so that's the lane that we've chosen. Excellent. He said, but I've got advice for you. And I said, hit me with it. I am always open for advice, for criticism, for constructive criticism as well. Um, even non-constructive criticism, I embrace it. Uh, he said, the, the way that I live my life, he said, I, I try to be nice to every single person that I encounter. He said, by me being nice to one person, he said, do you understand how many people that that could influence? And I said, no. And he said, well, think about it. Say I do one nice thing for somebody. They've got 20 people that they tell. He said, what if those next 20 people do the same thing? You've created just a, a pattern and an overflowing of kindness just because of your decision to be nice, to do something kind for somebody. As we're driving on Highway 51, I was like, what in the world is happening? And I'm like taking notes from this guy. And it was one of those moments where I was like, I did not anticipate in this moment, at this day, thinking that I was going to learn something. Like, dare I say that God showed up in a moment that I was not prepared for. I had no anticipation to learn something from this day. I thought our relationship was, I'm going to put your, truck, your car on my truck, I'm going to take you to a mechanic, uh, and then leave you there, which is how that, that relationship ended um, until Whitney came later on. But I had never anticipated learning from this person. Later on, I learned that this guy's name was Biscuit. I said, sir, there's no way that is your Christian name. He said, I promise you, everyone calls me Biscuit. Called later that, because I said, I'm going to call your tow truck company and thank them for who you are and how you like conduct yourself. And I said, ma'am, I'm just going to say what he told me his name was. And she said, oh, you met Biscuit. And I was like, yes, ma'am, I did. But I tell that story because so often in our lives, we have our guards up. 
Or more than that, like we are overanalyzing every moment and every situation, looking for God to show up at these big, glorious moments with fireworks and lights. But in every ordinary day, God is showing up. Sometimes we're just not looking. Sometimes we're just not ready and welcoming those opportunities for God to show up in our lives because we want it to be big and grand. God may show up in a tow truck in a moment where you think, this is the worst day of my life. I learned that there are good people in West Tennessee. I didn't know that up to that point. I thought they were all bad people. But I tell that story as an intro to where we are entering into the text this morning. An unlikely situation where God shows up in a moment. Where God shows up in a story in somebody's life where they are not anticipating it. They are not ready for it. But God shows up. The story begins in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant, uh, meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave our country. Verse 22, the Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now this is a story that we love to tell to children. Um, we do. We love the burning bush story because it's, it's a fun story about God speaking to somebody through a bush. It's fun. But man, we glaze over some of the parts that got us there. This story does not start off PG, even mildly appropriate to children. It is immediately about the persecution of the Israelites, but more so how they get there and what they're going to do. Pharaoh commands that they take every male born and throw them into the Nile. This is not a cute story. This is not a cuddly story. This is a story that starts off dark, like a lot of these stories in the Old Testament do. And their story turns our attention in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, to a little bit of a hope. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Have you ever tried to hide a baby? Have you ever tried to even go to a restaurant and keep the baby quiet? One of our, our old administrative assistants, Catherine Davis, once told me that a baby's cries are the loudest to the parent. That's a lie. I don't believe that's true. Uh, as, as people would look at us when our children would cry at our lunch tables, I was like, I don't think she was right about that. But think about that for a moment. Think about the joy of parenthood. This mother has to hide this child. This isn't a celebration of life. This is a, a protection of existence. The only way that Moses can survive is if Moses' mother hides him. And for a moment, just step into her shoes and think about how difficult and painful this might have been. She doesn't get to show off pictures on her Facebook to all of her friends. Look at my cute little baby. His existence is hidden from everyone. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket from him and coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now this language that we see here is the exact same language that we see in Genesis chapter 6, 
when God talks about how the ark will be a savior to Noah and his family. It's the same Hebrew language that we're seeing here with um, <clears throat> the vessel that, the basket that Moses is going to be placed in. So we know kind of the story, right? Because it's a cute story. The wicker basket floats along the Nile. Someone from Pharaoh's household finds the, the basket and like, oh, surprise, a baby. And then in verses 11 through 13, we get fast forward into Moses' life. It says, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. So even though Moses was in Pharaoh's household, he never forgot where he came from. He knew who he belonged to. Now, in his situation, Moses, Moses is likely being raised to be a potential Pharaoh. Like, I need you to understand, like, that is the place of prominence that Moses found himself at. He wasn't just a run-of-the-mill person who they found in the river. He was somebody that they were training and equipping to be in a place of prominence. And so he saw an Egyptian beating a, a Hebrew. This language here is, is a little PG as well. This individual was beating this slave to the, like, an inch of his life. This wasn't a, a casual slave beating. This was, I'm intending to kill you. One of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Again, this is a story that we love to tell kids. And so it starts off with Pharaoh saying, let's throw all the baby boys in the Nile River. And then chapter 2, we have Moses killing a man and then hiding his body. I know that we have some attorneys here, but I think we've hit a couple felonies. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. We'll pause there for just a second because I want to explain to you how Moses got to Midian. When Moses flees Egypt, there's only a few places that he can go. He, he can't really go anywhere that the Egyptians control, obviously. But he also can't go places where the Egyptians have relationships with other nations, particularly the Hittites. So beyond the reach of the Egyptians were the Hittites, and Moses couldn't go there. If he went there and was captured by the Hittites, they would have sent him right back to Egypt, and then he would have been murdered. Again, fun vacation Bible story, right? But Midian is a really interesting place because the Midianites are descendants of Abraham. See, they follow the God of Jehovah. And there's a connection there that may be unintentional, but I don't think it is. Because Moses goes to the one place where he has safety where he can exist, that there is safe haven for Moses. So he finds himself in Midian, and he, he sets down by this well. Again, the, the Hebrew is a little bit ambiguous, because what's really happening is he's set up camp there. It's likely that Moses is like literally living around this well. Uh, I don't know if he's got a camper, what type of situation he would have had, but he's, he's there and he's existing around this well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. And from there, a love story develops. Well, I'm not going to get into it because 
That's not what I'm doing here. I'm trying to talk about the bad stuff and how the, dark, the darkness of the vacation Bible stories that we like to tell kids. But Moses eventually finds a wife through this. Uh, she, he meets one of Jethro's daughters. Uh, his wife's name is actually where we get the, the word Sephora, too. So if you're interested in that story, it's where that develops. Fun fact for you on Father's Day. But the story continues in chapter 3. And this is really where we, we come to this full circle part of what's going on in the story. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over there and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. I want to pause for just a second and ask you to really look at this scene that's happening. There's some imagery there that we kind of overlook a lot of times. When we tell the story to kids, what we like to do is we like to paint a picture of a, a literal bush that's on fire. There appears to be something a little bit more that's happening. It may be the case that an image of the angel of the Lord appears within this fire. And I'm emphasizing that because I don't want you to think this is just like a tiny little shrub. This might have been something bigger it might have been something that would have caught his attention from far away. It might not have just been a tiny little shrub that you have maybe on, in your lawn or something like that. It might have been something that was the size of an angel of the Lord. But whatever it is, it, it catches Moses' attention. It draws him in. And there's an element of this that, that I need you to see that the bush was burning before Moses got there. And it, it's going to be burning after Moses leaves. There's something that is powerful in this imagery that God does not quit. That God continues to exist, continues to provide, continues to deliver. Even when we can't see God working, God is there. The fire from the burning bush is still continuing. We also have to think about Moses at this point in his life. He's somewhat of a successful uh, shepherd. I mean, it's likely that he only got that position because he married into the family. He doesn't have a flock of his own. He was just hanging out by the well. He wiped away every type of political gain by killing the Egyptian and running away from Pharaoh's household. He's got this low stock of life. But God still connects with Moses. He still, see, he still sees value in who Moses is and who Moses can become. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. I've looked at this text a lot. I've never talked to a bush that was on fire. I've never even been in a situation close to this. And I am adding a little emphasis to the text. But I like to believe that Moses' voice was a little shaky. This is likely the first time that he's ever encountered anything like this. The story does not give us a lot of dialogue between God and Moses up to this point. Moses was abandoned by his family to save him, but he was put into the river. He was placed in Pharaoh's household. He knew that he was a Hebrew by birth. 
but he, he doesn't have this connection with God. But here in this moment, the angel of the Lord reaches out to him and says, Moses, Moses, and he just says, here I am. Like, I think it was weak. I think it was timid. I think he was afraid. So he says, do not come any closer, God said. Take your sandals, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God does something that we've seen over and over again in these Bible stories. We're starting in verse 7. God says, I have indeed seen the misery of the people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land, the good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God is saying, I remember your people. Perhaps you thought that you were forgotten. Perhaps you thought that I didn't remember that you were suffering. And often when God uses the language of remembering, it's God is saying, I'm turning every ounce of my attention to you. My focus will now be on not just delivering you from the persecution, but providing for you this new land. What was taken from you, I will give to you. And God delivers this beautiful, powerful promise to Moses. And a lot of us look at these stories and we say that we would be like, let's go, God. I'm all in. Sign me up. Let's go, everybody. Who's with me? But in verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I mentioned a moment ago, there's a, a lack of self-worth that Moses has. He found himself in Pharaoh's household because his mother could not protect him anymore. He lost the right to be in Pharaoh's household because he killed a fellow Egyptian and then when the Hebrew people found out about it, he felt abandoned by them as well. And he ran away, and now he's a shepherd in Midian. And likely only a shepherd because his father-in-law had a flock. And so Moses says, God, God, what are you talking about? How am I supposed to do this? And in verse 12, God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is... I who have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Years ago, I was convinced by a group of kids to take them to a place called Loco Ropes. Uh, I googled this, and it, it appears to be closed now. Um, but these kids bullied me into this. Um, I, I don't like heights. I, I'm not good with heights. My knees get weak. I question all of the judgment up to that point. Uh, we've got a few other pictures of it, this, these death traps that these put people on. That's, yeah, it's not my picture. Uh, that's one that they're promoting their business with. Um, <clears throat> but Local Ropes is a place, I believe, in Mountain Home. Um, so it's a decent drive away. But you, you go into this, uh, I think it's a park too, but you go into this course, you climb this big tree house, and then they hook you up on these harnesses. And then it's just, you walk across these bridges or these ropes, like things that God did not want us to do, right? <clears throat> these are man-made contraptions. And so we're, we're on this trip, and there, there's a couple kids with us, and the kids whose idea it was didn't even show up. And that's when I thought, like, this is a bad sign. 
uh, this kid has tricked us into this, and here we are going all the way uh, to this local ropes place. But the kids start doing it, and there, there's several kids that are like, they're into it, and it's their jam. And, and I'm one of the last people to get harnessed up and to get strapped into the, the apparatus or whatever it's called. And I turn to the, the teenage instructor that's beside me, giving me a ton of confidence. I'm like, how old are you? Um, I'm like, 14. It's their first job. Um, but uh, I turned to the kid and I said, hey, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I can do this. I, I don't. I was like, my knees are weak. I, I don't think I can do this. Love that they're having fun. It looks like they're having great. You know, they're turning back. and like, look at it swing. Um, I'm like, I, just, I don't think I can do it. And I said, is it like, I go, do I just go back that way? What's the refund policy? And he said, hey, man, like, take a deep breath. And he said, if people died on this, we would not have a business. And I said, what? And he goes, well, think about it. If people were dying, nobody would come to this. And I was like, that's a great, terrible point that you've just made. And he said, but in all seriousness, he said, you're hooked up. He said, you can't fall to the ground. He said, we've got you strapped in. You've got the harness. You get connected to the rope. He said, in every landing, there's an employee to help you get to the next one to make sure that you're hooked in right. And after I threw up, I decided I could do this. Um, and I did. I, I did it. But I remember in that day that, that weird feeling of like knowing that somebody was with me. Like for the first time that I was like, okay, my knees still feel weak. I'm still not sure about this. I still would rather have a refund. But like for the first time, I think I can do it. And that's really where the story resumes in verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? See, every time people had encounters with God, especially in the Old Testament, they came back with a nickname, kind of a new way to identify God. But what God says to Moses in verse 14 is God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. We see this in English, but there's something that's happening in Hebrew. We're getting just basically four letters. It's Y-H-W-H. Yah-Heh-Vah-Heh. If you say that in your, in your throat, it's a lot of air movement that's happening. If you just want to say it for fun, you can do, do it later, whatever. But it's Yah-Heh-Vah-Heh. You, you can feel the air coming in and out. What I believe that God is telling Moses is that as long as you have breath in your body, as long as there is air in your lungs, I am with you. And he gives him this name that says that, that you feel it coming in and out. The presence of God has not abandoned you, Moses. The presence of God has always been with you. Whether you realize it or not, you are not alone. You are being sent by the true God, the God who gives life, who gives breath, who gives existence. So God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. He says, go assemble the elders of Israel and, Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you. I've seen what, you've done to, what they've done to you in Egypt. 
And I promise to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God makes this promise to Moses that he's not alone, that God is with him. See, the story is often told to children and says, look at this burning bush. How neat is it that God would turn a bush inflamed and talk to Moses? But if we were to apply a, a grown-up understanding to this, maybe something that as adults that we need to hear from time to time, is that the bush has always been burning. The bush was burning before Moses showed up, and it was burning after Moses left. God spoke to Moses in that moment as a reminder to say, Moses, what you have done has not disqualified you from service. How you have lived, the mistakes that you've made, Moses, you still have a place. You still have a purpose. I can still use you, Moses. I promise you that that is likely the first time that Moses heard that. Because Moses was carrying around the weight of his background, of where he had been, what he had done with him. And for the first time in his life, God told him, hey, Moses, you still matter. I still need you. I can still use you. But more than that, what Moses takes away from the story and what I believe that we as adults also need to take away from the story is that God is always with us. At times, we may lack the confidence to go into situations and proclaim the name of God. Perhaps we think that we, we lack a skill set to do what we feel like God is commanding us to do. But in the story of the burning bush, we see that God is saying, I have equipped you, I have prepared you, and more than any of that, I am with you. As long as you have breath in your lungs, I am with you. Because I am who I am. Let's stand and sing together.